This is different because uh, uh, in last November uh, we were planning to uh, work on some documents precisely uh, on the same topic that we are addressing the documents uh, this time. And uh, we were asked by uh, the, the uh, Holy See to uh, study the documents but not to make a final decision. So it was a little uh, uh, different last time. That's Archbishop Jose Gomez, Vice President of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. We spoke with him last week in Baltimore, where bishops were meeting for their spring assembly. The bishops meet twice a year, in November and then in June. And like Archbishop Gomez said, last week's meeting was very different from their meeting in November. The November meeting, you probably remember, it took place just a couple of months after the Archdiocese of New York announced credible allegations of sexual abuse against then-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. That November meeting took place in the heart of a firestorm of scandal, disappointment, frustration, and more troubling revelations in the church. In the middle of that scandal, the bishops came to Baltimore in November, ready to vote on a package of reforms they hoped would address the crisis. But then... Dear brothers, I need to open our time together with an important announcement. At the insistence of the Holy See, we will not be voting on the two action items in our documentation regarding the abuse crisis. The Holy See has asked that we delay voting on these so that our deliberations can inform and be informed by the global meeting of the conference presidents that the Holy Father has called for February 2019. I'm sorry for the late notice, but in fact, this was conveyed to me late yesterday afternoon. Catholics were mad. Bishops were disappointed. We, we actually covered this meeting in depth in episode one, the very first episode of this podcast. So feel free to go back to that to hear more about it if you want to, but then come back to this one. Anyway, after that meeting, the Pope had the U.S. bishops take a retreat. Then he hosted that global sex abuse summit in February. Then more troubling revelations emerged. Catholics remained angry and distrustful. Even this month, discouraging reports emerged about abuse on the part of former West Virginia Bishop Michael Bransfield. And now, another meeting. This week, we're giving you a quick look into what happened at the bishop's spring meeting, and we'll bring you the voices of two bishops at the center of the reform effort. Then I'll be joined by DC editor Ed Condon to talk about what we think worked and what didn't work. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. Stick around. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. So bishops' meetings usually take place over a period of three days. More than 200 bishops, archbishops, cardinals, auxiliary bishops, along with priests and lay observers and members of the media all gather in this massive hotel conference room. At the front of the room is a stage with a long table. There sits the president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, right now Cardinal Daniel DiNardo of Galveston, Houston, and the vice president, Archbishop Jose Gomez, who we heard from earlier, and the conference's general secretary, Monsignor Brian Bransfield, who is responsible for running the offices of the USCCB. Each day begins with prayer. And then the bishops go about the day's tasks. It's like a business meeting for the leadership of the church. 
All those in favor of following the committee's recommendation to reject the amendment, please say aye. Aye. All those opposed, please say no. The, the ayes have it, gentlemen. Uh, thank you, brothers. Thank you very much. On the first day, the leaders of different committees within the USCCB give updates on their work, and they explain any measures that the bishops will have to vote on later in the week. At this meeting, the second day was spent mostly in smaller, private, regional meetings. Then in the afternoon, there were more updates from committee leaders about amendments to the measures that they had presented the day before. The third day is spent voting on the measures put forth by the committees. This is how policies and procedures and documents of the USCCB get passed. This meeting, most of those measures were efforts to respond to the sex abuse crisis. Now remember, in November, the Vatican suspended any voting or action on measures in response to the crisis. But at this meeting, the bishops were free to move forward with debate and with voting. There are a couple of different items. This is Bishop Robert Dealey. He's a canon lawyer, and... I've known him long enough that I think of him as Monsignor Bob, but Bishop Dealey seems more appropriate for the podcast. Bishop Dealey is chairman of the Canonical Affairs Committee, so he was in charge of developing most of the measures the bishops voted on. It is the hope to be able to establish a national reporting uh, mechanism for uh, allegations which might be made against a particular bishop, because it becomes abundantly clear in the last year that these things can happen and people need to have a way in which they can bring that report to the proper ecclesiastical authority where it can be dealt with. And so this third-party reporting system as well, the Holy Father has given a, uh, a document for the, for the whole world, which is called uh, Vos Estis Lux Mundi, which is You Are the Light of the World, which calls everybody throughout the world to uh, have a, a way of dealing with, uh, with uh, crimes of sex abuse perpetrated by uh, bishops or priests or uh, religious of any kind, though we have uh, made much progress uh, with the Charter and Norms of uh, 2002. This is a worldwide document, very much grounded in the documents that we've already um, promulgated and and worked with for the last 17 years, but now we have to apply those to bishops, and so uh, we have a document on applying Vos Estes to bishops and uh, also we have a, a, a statement of um, Episcopal uh, conduct, uh, which basically states what, what we are called to be as bishops uh, and the moral uh, call uh, to live out the, our life with integrity and truth. And it's a restatement of things that we promise at ordination and in uh, our, our baptismal call to live a moral life. Um, that's another document. And finally, there is a document which is basically a, a kind of a or a helping document for a bishop who might be having trouble dealing with a, a bishop who has been retired, who has offended in some way. So a third-party reporting system, a U.S. application of the norms offered in the Pope's motu proprio, Vos Estis Lux Mundi, a statement, a kind of Episcopal code of conduct, and then guidelines for handling bishops who are retired or who have been removed, under allegations of misconduct or abuse. As each measure was introduced, bishops took turns offering feedback on language in the measures or asking for clarifications on certain parts of the measures. Do we want to constrict our language to that, to clergy? How does this whole document relate to the prior statement of Episcopal commitment? The mind of the committee is that that, that, uh, that this document uh, has that kind of um, distinction and clarity to it. I believe it should be mandatory. 
that we involve laity in the investigation of any case of sexual abuse by a bishop or corruption. Here's Archbishop Gomez again. Uh, I think it is clear uh, in the uh, life of the Church in the United States that we have zero tolerance uh, regarding uh, abuse of minors. So I think this, this meeting is, is very important because we are coming to the final decisions on how to, um, to address this situation. And we have also the, uh, the, the support of the Holy See. Ultimately, with surprisingly less discussion than many people had anticipated, the bishops passed all four measures by an overwhelming majority. Still, some Catholics told CNA that these measures didn't feel like enough, or they felt like they were too little too late. Some Catholics felt, and I, I understand why, like the meeting they watched was a, a business meeting. They had hoped to see something more prophetic. But I think it's worth noting that the church's response is more than just the USCCB's work. And Bishop Dealey told CNA that what the Bishop's Conference can do is only part of the answer. Here he is again. The conference only has limited authority. So we can deal with it, uh, but we can deal with it with suggestions, we can deal with it with best practices. I think the important thing that we want to communicate is that we are, we have been and are working on these very difficult uh, topics. And I think that the, what is important and what uh, we need to, to remind people is that, in fact, um, there has been a great deal of uh, good work done and we have been able to uh, make our environment in the church safe environments. I have heard it said that the church, Catholic Church in the United States is, is the safest place uh, for children to be, and I think that that is true. Now we have a, a situation in which we are dealing with other crimes besides the, 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 the sexual abuse of children, and so we, we will have to, we, we, we're looking at that and trying to put things into effect, and that will, that will make it possible for us to, to be able to deal with that as well. So I think the important thing is what, the, what my committee is doing, what the bishops are doing here, uh, is trying to um, put us in a place in which the gospel becomes paramount in what we do, and that uh, people uh, feel that, that we are dealing with the problems and difficulties that, that uh, are in our midst and in the best way that we can. Here's Archbishop Gomez, who told us that the bishop's main objective is to be there for the victim survivors of abuse. Obviously, uh, there is a situation that uh, somebody has suffered as a consequence of sexual abuse. There are some channels that can be used right now to, to, to talk about that situation, those situations. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the, the delay in, in, in putting together some of these means is just the technicality of how to do it. But obviously, as I said at the meeting, uh, our first priority is the victim survivors for their healing and their care uh, because it is a tragedy. I think it's important, uh, first of all, that, uh, that uh, everybody understands that we are totally committed to this process uh, 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 and to the purification, uh, conversion, uh, of the church in the United States, and for that matter, the, the Universal Church. And at the same time, at the same time, I think I think we need your, the prayers of everybody, uh, every uh, faithful in the United States, that we continue this process, and that we are together. I mean, we are the church, all of us, the the bishops, the priests, the religious, the lay faithful, we are the people of God. So 
let's continue to work together uh, for the uh, glory of God and service of the people of God in, in the United States. I'm J.D. Flynn. You're listening to CNA Newsroom. When we come back, I'll be joined by CNA's D.C. editor, Ed Condon, and we'll talk a little bit about some of these measures, whether we think they'll work, whether we think they won't work, and what could come next for the church. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Michelle LaRosa. I'm the deputy editor-in-chief at CNA. If you've been listening to our podcast, you know that I am not a big fan of fish sandwiches, with the exception of Arby's. Well, here's another fun fact about me. I am actually not a huge fan of podcasts, with the exception of CNA Newsroom. Normally, I just listen to country music almost exclusively, but I make an exception every Friday morning to listen to the latest episode of CNA Newsroom. It's entertaining, it's informative, it's a great way to stay up to date on the latest Catholic news. I subscribe on Apple Podcasts so I never miss an episode or a bonus episode. And you can do the same on any podcast platform, Stitcher, Spotify. Just search for CNA Newsroom and subscribe today. And if you like the podcast, leave us a rating and a review. That will help other people find it too. Hey everybody, welcome back to CNA Newsroom. In the first half of this podcast, we talked a little bit about what happened in Baltimore, and we heard from the bishops about how they think that went. But I am joined now by uh, CNA's DC editor, Ed Condon. Ed, what is your take on what we've seen uh, over the last few days? I have kind of mixed emotions about the whole thing. I, I think that the bishops did some some good and solid and noble work in terms of passing measures that are going to have a real impact. I think. They did a very good job of coming up with a credible strategy for implementing Vos Estes in the church in the United States. I think the statement on affirming Episcopal commitments had some very interesting points in it. And I think that the the protocols for diocesan bishops on restricting the ministry of retired or resigned bishops in their own diocese has some value and, and could open up some interesting possibilities for, uh, for a little bishop-on-bishop discipline in the future. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there were a lot of missed opportunities. I think that um, at best, these measures are going to mean that the problem of Episcopal accountability and the crisis of Episcopal accountability fades away rather than is brought to a definitive close. I think a lot of the faithful were probably watching the live stream of these sessions and looking to see their own bishop say something strong, looking to see them take the side of the faithful, share some of their outrage, share some of their pain over what's come to the fore in the last year, particularly around uh, the examples of Theodore McCarrick and Bishop Michael Bransfield. And uh, we didn't see much of that. And I think that's a shame. Yeah, I, I would agree that I think the, the, the actual documents that the bishops passed, uh, um, a, a kind of a code of conduct, a protocol for dealing with retired bishops uh, who've been accused of abuse, misconduct, or neglect, um, guidelines to implement the Pope's plan, and then the establishment of a third-party reporting system. Good, great. Those are good good steps. And they're the kind of steps that I think the bishops wanted to take in November when they were restricted um, from voting, or similar kinds of things to what the bishops wanted to do in November when they were restricted from voting. But as I talk to uh, staffers, USCCB staffers, observers at the meeting, uh, lay people, priests, religious brothers and sisters who, who are here at the meeting, a lot of them did kind of echo what what you're saying, which is that they had hoped for a more um, a sense that the bishops were feeling the same kind of discouragement and and resignation, perhaps 
or anger that that many um, that many Catholics are feeling. You know, in the report about Bishop Michael Branchfield was repu- was published last week. Um, really grave misdeeds on the part of Bishop Branchfield were were published, and then kind of report about his propensity to give large cash gifts to the kinds of figures who might call him to account, his brother bishops and Vatican officials. When all of that was reported last week, I I think for a lot of Catholics it was like reminiscent of exactly how they felt when the whole McCarrick scandal just first started. Um, Or maybe even worse because it was like, well, it's not just one bishop who we've seen in this really gravely problematic situation, but more than one, and are there others? The the Catholics who I talked to this week were asking me, um, do the bishops get how frustrating, demoralizing, and discouraging that is? And I think they do. I th- the bishops who I talk to, I, I think they do get it. When I talk to them on a one-on-one basis or when you, you and I talk with them or, or, or our journalists talk with them, I think they do get it. But at the meeting, um, there was kind of a focus on um, the technical and procedural aspects of these policies that they were creating and, and probably to the detriment of the kind of thunderous and prophetic and authentic experience that uh, the Catholics were hoping to see and, and the kind of really personal reflections that they were seeing from bishops in the, in the last meeting back in November. I, I think that's right. I, the other thing that strikes me is, um, you know, you mentioned the report that was released or leaked, really. Uh, into yeah, right. That's exact, That's part of the problem, isn't it? Bishop Michael Bransfield. Um, and it wasn't just the accusations against him. I think the real scandal around the leaking of the Bransfield report is not what Bransfield is, was found to have done, or at least looked likely that he has done. Um, but it was this uh, this envelope culture that we, we talked about in the last podcast, I think, and also the initial decision by Archbishop Laurie to to sort of omit the names of bishops who who had been in receipt of gifts from uh, Bishop Bransfield because he thought it would be a distraction. And I think this angered the lady, myself included, really, for a number of reasons. Um, the first of which is obviously it's extremely unedifying to to be confronted with this sort of boosterella culture uh, in the church anywhere in the world, in the United States or in Rome. Um, but also the idea that you know, naming the other bishops who had been in receipt of these gifts or who might have had an incentive wittingly or otherwise to to look the other way or perhaps not look too hard at Bishop Bransfield's conduct, you know, the, this is part of the problem. And to, to think it's a distraction is to minimize and ignore what is a problem. And I and one thing I want to emphasize and one thing that I think really uh, stuck out to me over the course of this week talking to bishops from different parts of the country is as much as there's this impression looking at something like the Bransfield report that oh gosh these bishops must all be in it together this must be just you know how they are it's not the case you know there are a lot of bishops I think I spoke to more than a few here um, for whom this kind of idea of bishops sort of you know exchanging gifts of thousands of dollars or whatever is totally alien to their experience totally alien to their understanding of Episcopal ministry and I think it would have been really helpful for them to get up and say so. I think it would have been as reassuring or even more reassuring for the lady back home in their diocese to see their bishop get up and say, I don't know what's been going on you know, over here on the East Coast, but it's not how we do things back home. And I want my, I want my people to know that. I don't think there was any shortage of, as you were saying, sort of practical or procedural leadership or the sort of you know, dry technical aspects of that. But I did notice a, really a, a sort of vacuum of leadership uh, at a moral level uh, in the conference this week, that there was no one really taking a lead in speaking with, you know, a sort of zealous apostolic tone, you know, call, <laughs> calling his brother bishops to conversion and really taking a hand in sort of she- separating the sheep from the goats here. And and I think that's something that the bishops, I, I wish they would have perhaps thought about this more before the conference, and hopefully they'll take it away with them and maybe they can think about it more 
ahead of the next time they meet, which is there's a danger of too much consensus and there's really a danger of um, of them presenting themselves too much as a united front because it's not to their advantage and it's not to the the good of souls for them to appear to be a completely united front when part of that front is, for example, bishops who've been removed or resigned right. for right. maladministration or negligence right. or whatever else. Yeah, word, as it were. Yeah, I think that's right. For those of you who didn't get the, the metaphor that Ed was making, sheep go to heaven and goats go to hell. So that's what that separation was about. Um, no, I agree. I, I think... Um, we're talking about how there's a lot, a great deal of consensus at the bishops' conference, and then I'm just like, oh yeah, I agree. Um, during the bishops' meeting, um, Dr. Francesco Cesario, who's the the chairman of the National Review Board, and Colonel Anita Rains, who is the uh, a chairwoman of the National Advisory Council and a podcast listener, hey Anita, um, both made mention of the zeal that Catholics have to have information released about. Archbishop McCarrick for us to get a comprehensive report and an understanding of what happened and not only what happened but who McCarrick's protectors were and whether enabling or ignoring um, or looking the other way in the face of grave evil is commonplace or something that 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 needs to continue to be rooted out and that really didn't come up I mean there was not even a motion at, at, at the November meeting there was a motion well we should urged the Holy See to release all the information about McCarrick. The, the motion didn't pass, but there was at least a motion. And, and at this, gosh, I think I think maybe one, two, three, four, maybe bishops, maybe four bishops talked about McCarrick at all during the meeting from the floor debate. And so um, the things that I think Catholics are still thinking about that we do still hear about when we go to work or at a party or at a kid's soccer game or wherever else we go, those weren't discussed, and again, that's not to diminish the procedural side, but it's to say, um, are bishops understanding the way that practicing Catholic laity have experienced the last year? And I I, I think the ones who understand it are not speaking, and um, or did not speak at least at this meeting, probably in, in their diocese is different, but I think if you're looking at this meeting as a sort of um, an expression of solidarity, that part was not there in the way that I had hoped it might be. Well, I think it was interesting also that um, this is something we've both talked about before. One of the unexpected byproducts of the Vatican's decision to stop the bishops voting on measures like this last November was they found themselves with a lot of time on their hands. And almost to sort of fill the space, they ended up having a discussion that got deeply personal on some occasions and was very profound. And I thought, really... Uh, I'd hoped it was going to be a sort of new normal for the bishops. Yeah, we talked a lot about that. Would this become a way in which the bishops would engage with one another as brothers without a particular sort of action item agenda driving them, but just to to have a kind of synodal reflection on their experience? Yeah, and unfortunately the answer to that seems to be no. That's not the new normal. We were were back to business as usual this time, which was really, you know, to keep focused on on moving through the agenda. I mean... I, I don't know. I feel like uh, if you were to ask m- pretty much any Catholic in a diocese in this country, say, can the bishops possibly say enough about how bad things have been in the last year and how much they are committed to, to seeing it right and how much they understand why the laity are angry? And most importantly, how they share that anger of the laity, you know, against the, the worst actors within their own ranks. They, they'd have said, you know, they couldn't possibly talk about this enough. And yet the bishops finished two hours early today. They didn't appear to have much to say at all beyond saying, nope, I think we've got these structures and procedures yeah, right. Let's bring them no in. Debate. Some technical questions, but practically no real debate. Or There are some really, there are some open-ended questions that are contained even within the documents that might have merited more even substantive practical discussion. But the sort of 
theological reflection or common discernment. You know, I know that there's criticism of Pope Francis when he talks about a desire for a synodal church, and people say they don't quite know what that means. But if part of what synodality is is a kind of common Episcopal or common Catholic prayerful discernment of God's will, which begins, I think, you know, with the memory of the reflection on the memory of what has happened, an assessment of what is happening. Um, that was not the tenor of this meeting, and 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 perhaps it will be the tenor of future bishops' meetings if, like, bishops are listening to this podcast and decide that that's what the tenor of the meeting should be. But this meeting, I think, anyone who was there would agree, was a was a business meeting, and um, it was parliamentary. It wasn't synodal. I, I'm glad. Yeah word. Um, I'm glad for the, um, I'm glad for the things that passed. I think they're the right things. I think they'll make a difference. I think there's work to be done to implement them, but I'm glad for the things that passed. Um, but if, if, um, if there's a triple munera to the, to Episcopal ministry, you know, if there's the ministry of teaching, the ministry of governing and the ministry of sanctifying, we were down in the nitty gritty here of the ministry of governing. Um, and the bishop celebrated Mass together. That's a facet of the ministry of sanctifying. But the sort of teaching, and part of that teaching is, I think, witnessing the reality of their own experiences and, and the, the experience of the church right now. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, would, I would wish for more of that. And part of me wonders, okay, well, we sort of work in, the, in Catholic media. We're really paying attention to this stuff. We're zeroed in on this stuff. Do we have a distorted sense of what the experience of most Catholics is right now? So I try and ask Catholics as often as I can, kind of, do you think that I have an overblown sense of this crisis or that the media has an overblown sense of this crisis? And I think, if anything, they, the Catholics that I talk to who go to Mass would say, well, we think you have an underblown sense of, of our discouragement and, and the difficulty that this is posed for us. So I, I would wish that the bishops maybe would, would hear that and would know that even as a body, the importance of spe- expressing that is real. I, I would agree with that completely. I, um, every time I talk to someone who, you know, doesn't have the doesn't have to spend their time, uh, you know, covering the bishops extensively or whatever. And it's really just, you know, their contact with the church and with scandal and all of that sort of thing comes from, you know, going to mass, being a part of their own parish community. Uh, I think you're right. I think they're very much uh, perceiving this as, as even more grave than perhaps we're painting it because, you know, we've just spent three days talking to bishops, coming to a sense of, you know, there are good and holy bishops here. There are some and who there are, and there are, but, um, let's be clear, 99.9% of Catholics don't have that kind of personal contact with bishops. They don't have that level of personal mm-hmm. reassurance. And yeah. I wouldn't encourage them to just take our word for it either, that they deserve to hear from their bishops themselves. And this was an opportunity for them to speak. Uh, it was an opportunity for them to speak directly. And you don't have to get up and propose a you know a technical revision to the minutiae of the language of, a, of you know action item 11 on an agenda to make use of the fact that there's a microphone there and an audience of all of your all of your brother bishops in person and all of your lay faithful potentially um, on a screen somewhere to say, I, I know what's been going on for the last year. I know the extent of the damage that's been done, or at least I can guess at it. And I'm, I have a sense of the urgency of the problem because I think, I think really the best case scenario coming away from Baltimore this month is that if all of these procedures work perfectly, if all of them are set up in great time and all of them come into place without any hiccups or hitches or delays whatsoever, uh, the best case scenario is in 10 years we end up with Episcopal accountability where we are today with clerical sexual abuse after 2002, which is that the structures have worked. Broadly speaking, the problem has been dealt with. Um, We're not really seeing any kind of 
incidents on a on a dramatic or noticeable level of ongoing offending um the rare occasions where there is something it's dealt with swiftly and effectively but i don't think we have that much time and i certainly don't think the bishops have that much time to play with to hope that the problem just sort of eventually dies out they need to take drastic and apostolic and prophetic and zealous action to to really heal the breach of trust and you can't do that with a document you have to do that as pope francis would say by you know getting out amongst your sheep and telling them that you're with them june 20th 2018 was a sort of began a year that that began with a bang um this big shocking announcement about mccarrick and then just sort of one one shock after another but um it was a year to borrow a phrase that began like a lion and kind of goes out with a like a lamb with um with practically no nothing really large that people can wrap their hands around. The procedural things are really good. The bishops actually should be proud of having passed them. But there's not a kind of um, uh, there's not a kind of symmetry to this year in that the where we ultimately are ending is okay. We have some policies in place, but um, you know in the church penalties, for example. Uh, do a number of things, and one of them is to repair scandal. And I think it's that piece of the repair of scandal that is what we're waiting for, the repair of scandal, the restoration to wholeness. The communion of the church is a communion of faith and sacraments and governance, but it's a communion of persons, and um, a breakdown in trust and a breakdown into a common sense of purpose has a way of rupturing that communion. And so repairing scandal repairs ecclesial communion. That's the thing where I think as we look forward, what what will be the things that might help to sort of repair even the rift of trust that's that that's that's been occasioned between uh, practicing Catholics and their bishops? You're asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. Oh uh, well, I, I guess it depends entirely on who the bishop is. You know, I can think of some bishops who are behaving in a in what I would call to be a truly prophetic way in their own diocese, and I wish more would follow their example. Um, one bishop I I singled out on on the Twitters and uh, in writing recently is Archbishop Hebda of Minneapolis St. Paul who um, has called a, a synod for his archdiocese uh, yeah, which is going to take great. place mm-hmm. in uh, Pentecost 2021 you know it takes a while to get these things organized and um, I was speaking to him a little bit earlier uh, this week and telling him how how impressed I was with this decision not just because it's a grand gesture but because you know, it's something that really recognizes uh, and honors the ecclesial structure of the church and involves every aspect of the church's life and people from the bishop to his auxiliaries to the clergy to the laity that everyone's in this together. But more importantly, that it's not, you know, some narrow crisis meeting that aims to produce a quick fix uh, or a technical thing, that it's a it's an open-ended, broad horizon. We are a living church in this city and we are, you know, we need to look forward not just to addressing immediate scandals, but we need to really think about how we're going to continue living together as as a church in the coming years. And so I really would like to see, you know, that sort of that sort of level of vision demonstrated in other places. Uh, if you're a bishop on the East Coast, particularly one that may have had a, a former leader who's been embroiled in scandal of one kind or another, I think you know, and this this isn't something I unfortunately have a great deal of hope of seeing. But what I want to see, I want to see heroic, uh, heroic to the point of self-sacrificing leadership by example. Um, 
I, I'm aware that, you know, some bishops, you mentioned Cardinal Tobin, uh, said that they have, you know, certain limitations on what they can release about Theodore McCarrick, for example, because of grand jury investigations or whatever. And okay, uh, you know, if there are civil law impediments, fine. But certainly in Washington, D.C., for example, we know because, you know, we've had several multiple mm-hmm. on the record conversations and confirmations mm-hmm. of this that mm-hmm. Theodore McCarrick operated a an archbishop's fund, which was under his sole use and discretion. We've tracked and reported on millions of dollars going into that fund and we don't know where any of it went but we know that the archdiocese know because they've told us they audited it every year um that's not subject to any civil procedure that could be made available tomorrow if they if they wanted to um and i suspect the the reason that it's not um going to be released at least by an official channel is much for the same reasons that archbishop laurie chose to leave the names of uh Michael Bransfield's recipients of gifts out of his report to Rome, which is they think it's a it's a distraction when in fact it's not the, it's not a distraction. It is the it is the blueprint of um, what's wrong in some parts of Episcopal culture. Yeah. And until we get honest and frank and fully functioning answers to that, um, I think these kinds of scandals are going to continue to dog the hierarchy here and in Rome. And I think we're going to continue to see a sort of slow death of credibility by a thousand cuts. And you know it's funny because I think the bishops. Uh, when asked about those kinds of things, and I've asked bishops this week, when will you release what you have? Because there are lots of things uh, among them, those those um, Archbishop Funds records that we, we really are pursuing. We're trying to do what Pope Francis said we should do as media, which is try to suss out what the reality is. And so I've asked bishops, when will you release what you have? And there's a sense in which it's sort of like, well, we're trying to move forward. We have these new norms. Why won't you let us move forward? Why Why, why would you kind of keep keep kind of pursuing this stuff at a certain point you're just kind of dragging it out okay um that that is a sense and that's perhaps a perspective that's being offered but frankly it's a nonsensical one because yeah you, you said earlier that um you know any structure however well put together is only as good as the people who implement it and the crisis uh, facing the bishops in this country, particularly right now, is that they don't have faith in the people charged with implementing this right. and they won't until they have a clear accounting of what went wrong last time you know this metropolitan model that um you know i think it was bishop robert dealey said has been used in some iteration has been used four times in the last year and um apparently with some success uh depending on your definition of success but you know uh if it had been around at the time of theodore mccarrick how would that have worked you wrote something i think earlier this year about how that would have played out and it wasn't going to be very successfully right because the senior suffragan himself would have been you know mccarrick's longtime vicar general and a bishop who himself is perhaps um there's perhaps evidence of his own being of his being morally compromised himself so um yeah this is uh the, the credibility the of these release, reforms yeah. hangs on the credibility yeah. of the people charged with right. implementing them. And, and one way to restore that credibility unquestionably is to re- release the kind of information that's being asked for. A- and so I think we have to continue to ask for that. And I, I do think people are either going to move on either by just moving on or by um, there are going to be more more people who are discouraged and who just don't trust the church. And that'll be a long, long-standing kind of rift in the kind of rift in the church that can affect the salvation of the souls uh, of souls and and the way to overcome that i think is with a a true dose of transparency and and i think for us and for our listeners one thing that we have to reckon with and i've talked about this before is that it may not happen there may not be the manifestation of transparencies that we're asking for that our listeners are asking for that great swaths of the church are asking for and then we have to say to ourselves in some way, well, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. How do we make our peace with being 
the sons and daughters of a church in which our leaders are not acting in the way that we have asked them to act. And that's a challenge. But I think for us it's an important spiritual challenge to recognize because none of us want to pretend that we're not discouraged, um, but none of us want to um, to lose our, our hope in the promises of Christ in the church either. So that's there's just a, there's just a challenge. There's just a cross that Catholics will have to carry for as long as they're asking their bishops to tell them the truth about certain things and, and not getting the answers that they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I'm coming away from Baltimore really, I guess, unimpressed and unsurprised. Like we said, there's there was some good, solid work done with these you know technical aspects and things, and that's great. But um, one thing that strikes me is uh, I've you've talked about the experience of going to mass with most of the bishops one night, and that that was very yeah, good. It was really nice. Uh, it, it was it was it was simple. It was humble. It was what I wish that more Catholics would see. There were hardly any lay people there because so, it was a staff. And and this is exactly what I was going to say is um, whenever I hear about a really positive experience among the bishops, it's at something like that, where a mass where it's you know essentially just the bishops, maybe yeah. a few lay or people the retreat, there. People the, say retreat the retreat at Mondelein, so this, great, yeah. yeah, fantastic part yeah. of their ministry. That some of them said they've never felt um, you know so in touch with uh, with their with their brother bishops and also with their own ministry and everything. And it's like, well, bully for you guys, but what's in it for me? How does that help me, the layman in the pews? I'm not there. I'm not seeing that. I'm not getting any of the benefit of it. And and I wonder if almost they're having too much of. Uh, too much of what they need behind closed doors. You've mentioned the idea of, well, maybe we should take the cameras out of the room. I kind of feel like, well, maybe we need to put these guys on permanent television because, you know, if I felt like a lot of the bishops there were, um, I would say a little too relaxed about uh, the process of change and reform and, and moving past this scandal that, you know, you look around the room. I, I didn't see a lot of people sweating bullets over over the state of the church in this country, and really they should be. I mean... But I disagree with the solution of permanent television. Well, or, I, I, no, I, know, I'm just, I know it's hyperbolic, but I, but I, I really do think that the reason why that—so I went to Mass this week to the kind of opening Mass for the conference, and sometimes, some, a lot of times the opening Mass for the conference is at the Basilica, and it's like this big thing, and there's a cantor, and she's a very high soprano, and there's an organ, and maybe a, a harp. Um, you know, it's a high—I'm going to use the term it's a high Mass, but I mean in Novus Ordo, and I know that some of our <laughs> listeners are going to write to us. But Carl's going to write to yeah, you. Yeah, it's a, it's a highfalutin Mass anyway, and— um, and a, 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 a big a big to-do. And the opening mass this time was in a room at the hotel. I don't know why that was. I think it was a logistic decision, but it was in a room in the hotel. The bishops were there. Um, media were allowed to attend. Staff were allowed to attend. But honestly, there were maybe two dozen lay people who were there. There was a little choir, but, um, but it was simple. It was like going to a daily mass with 200 concelebrants and most of them bishops. And, um, and it was humble. And... I was just reminded of the sacramental and ontological identity of these bishops and the charge that they have, and I want to hold them to account as much as the next guy. But I was also reminded of my desire to be in communion with them and my desire f for them and us and the Lord to heal the rift in communion that's come out of all of this. But that's because it was a personal experience. To borrow from Newman, it was core ad core, heart speaking to heart. And that comes in, in, in the breaking of the bread, right? We recognize Christ there. And so what I would wish for bishops is that until until they're experiencing a renewal of faith in their dioceses, they're going over to dinner to somebody's house every single week. So this um, is, yeah, I think this is exactly what we're talking about. going to recess at, my, at, you know, at, 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 at all the elementary schools of their diocese. And just being, the more I think that bishops are present with their people one-on-one, heart-to-heart, in reality, 
the more I think they will experience the difficult cross that Catholics have experienced in the last year with all of this and the way in which for faithful Catholics it really has been a cross to carry and an impediment, I think, to the apostolic life and mission of many ordinary faithful Catholics. And I think the more that um, that there's that, that engagement, that, that unmediated and real engagement, the more bishops will experience the, the cross of that and then help with the, with the Lord's work of renewal. I, I would agree with that. I mean, and this is kind of what I was trying to say before, is that, you know, it's wonderful for the bishops to have these very deeply affirming, spiritually nourishing um, periods of time, whether it's in a particular mass or in a retreat at Mundelein Seminary or whatever else. But, you know, the damage hasn't been done at least as far as I can see, particularly to their communion with each other. In fact, I'd say surprisingly little damage has been done to their communion with each other as bishops. The rift that needs to be healed is between the individual bishops and their people. And so that's where they need to be having these experiences of deep spiritual intimacy, um, real encounter, you know, not to not to quote Pope Francis, you know, ad nauseum on this, but, you know, they need to get out among the sheep if they expect the flock to follow them anywhere. And, you know... Sheep go to heaven, by the way. And goats go to hell. You keep saying that. I know. I, I, if people are it's listening been a long to it, I know. But if people are like an hour deep into a Catholic <laughs> news agency podcast, I'm pretty sure they know what the sheep and the goats are. Man. I know, but I kind of cake stuck in my head, and it's been a long week. Cake. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell, and the grave digger puts on the forceps. You know, people song? can't see the facial expression I'm making, but it's one of total blank confusion. <laughs> okay, I have no. I, I think at this point, JD is just the exhausted. Mason does all the work. The barber can give Kate, you. Kate, do you know this song? I actually don't, and I'm a cake fan. Well, okay, well. What is cake? <laughs> the band. There's a band called Cake. Yeah. Yes. Are they. What kind of music? I want a girl with a mind like a diamond. With a um, short skirt and, and a, a long, long jacket. jacket. <laughs> I honestly, God, don't know what's going on. I am glad. I don't know if it was intentional or if you got Kate to sing week. on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Yes. So that's something, I guess. Anyway, and you were saying smell like the sheep? Smell like the sheep. Um, that, you know, I, 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 for one, would like the bishops to be a lot less concerned with their own communion with each other and a lot more concerned with their own communion with the faithful in their diocese. And there's no easy way to do that. And I guarantee you absolutely none of the ways that will work will take place in the conference hall of a hotel room. Um, they they are gonna they're gonna have to get out amongst the parishes. They're gonna have to meet people, and and I I would if any of them are listening and they want my two cents for what it's worth, be spontaneous. Um, yeah. That you know, I, one of my favorite bishops, and I won't embarrass them by uh, by calling them out by name on this, but um, one of my favorite bishops had a habit of just sliding into the back pew of. Um, random well not random presumably he had a plan but um you know masses masses uh on a sunday he just slide into the back pew and he would you know have lunch with the priests uh of the parish after mass unannounced and unexpected and sometimes um to their considerable surprise but also with you know the parishioners you'd just go up to them and say hi i'm your bishop (laughs) you know yeah what's your name yeah i think that i think that kind of stuff is hugely important right now it's hugely important at any time i think about Voitiwa taking off when you was Archbishop of Krakow taking off weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks from the chancery, trusting someone else to kind of go to the money meetings and the strategic planning meetings and just going to spend time with families and, and with his priests for weeks. And, uh, and and what a difference that probably made for for him and, and for them and for their salvation and for the universal church. So here's, it, it, since we're, since you seem to like explaining gospel metaphors that I'm 
using I'll, I'll, I'll throw out another one which is that you know uh, Christ was very fond of saying that you know I, I know my sheep my sheep know me that the sheep know the shepherd's voice that they only follow the shepherd's voice and uh, I don't know a cake song for that uh, okay um, but I, I would just say uh, to and of the bishops that you know if the if the faithful don't hear your voice they aren't going to follow you mm-hmm. um, yeah. and you didn't any of you particularly pardon my painting all the broad brush here i didn't hear any bishops particularly speaking with a loud voice this week i think the loudest voice was you know a block of anonymous votes which is great they right. pass some things by an overwhelming margin right. but um that doesn't accustom your flock to the sound of your voice i'm afraid i i think that's right and um and so these are things that we'll continue to discuss and continue to cover uh, to cover and we will we're looking i i really want to do i really want to do success journalism i really want to find the places where the church is healing and and these things are being addressed with with renewal and reform and with apostolic zeal, and we're looking for them, and we'll continue to look for them and cover them when we find them, and they do exist, and we'll continue to talk about them. Three quick highlights for me of this week that I do want to note. First of all, we had a great team here uh, in Baltimore. We had uh, uh, you, Ed, of course, were here, and uh, I Matt, was here. Yes, mm-hmm. Matt Hadro, our DC correspondent, DC correspondent Christine Russell, and. Photographer, interviewer, producer, executive producer, editor extraordinaire, uh, Kate Vike has been here with us, and Kate, you've just done a great job, and that's been a real highlight for me. So um, the team, the good work of CNA here, the good work of CNA um, back in the Denver home office and in our other bureaus, um, kind of picking up the the slack as we've had two editors here, and and Carl, our our, our managing editor, Mich- Michelle is out this week, and so Carl has been. Uh, has been has been working hard, and and so have all of our writers. And Peter Zelasko, our social media uh, director, has been working really hard this week as well. And so um, the good work of our team, and, and how proud I am of that. And then I just, I mean, probably the third highlight for me is that the crab cakes in Baltimore are really good. So we'll continue to talk about those things too. Ed, so thanks so much for talking with me this afternoon. It's been a delight to be in the same place at the same time for a change. I concur. The CNA Newsroom is a production of. Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. Uh, I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to all the bishops who spoke with us and to all of you, our listeners. And we will talk to you next week. I'm going to sleep. Cake, man.